And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me in the studio today is the Reverend Mark Diedrich. Mark, it's an honor to have you with us today. Good to be here, Dan. This is an important time of year, and it's not because of Halloween. That's what the world (laughs) celebrates. But for the Christian, particularly uh, Protestants, we look to uh, October the 31st as being the celebration of Reformation Day. And uh, associated with that, of course, is uh, way back is Martin Luther and all that went on with him in the 95 Theses. But uh, a year later, um, something else happened. So maybe you can get us started talking about this. Sure, Dan. I think what we need to do almost is back up and go through a little of the history. And before doing that, what I'd like to do, Dan, is, is just talk about some of the significant people and just define them so when you hear the names again, hopefully the repetition of hearing a name will will help you. And these are the ones that we're going to be hearing in order. The first one is Albert of Mainz. Albert of Mainz was the bishop in the area where Luther was. He was the bishop there, and he was, in essence, Luther's bishop over him. Leo X was the pope at the time. Then we have a man by the name of Johannes Tetzel. Johannes Tetzel was a guy who was selling indulgences. He was a Dominican priest, a Dominican monk, and he went about selling indulgences. That would foment what we call the, the Reformation. Johannes Stalpitz is another individual. He was the head of the Augustinians in that region of Germany, And he was Luther's confessor, Luther's friend. He was over Luther, never did join the Reformation, but he was very close to Luther. Then there's an individual called Frederick the Wise. Frederick the Wise was the elector. He was a political ruler in the area. As an elector, he would be one of those individuals who would choose the Holy Roman Emperor. And one of the key things that Frederick the Wise did is he established the university at Wittenberg. That was his baby. And uh, so when Luther, you know, came to be the center of everything, of course, Luther became the franchise of the university at Wittenberg. Frederick the Wise wasn't about to give him up. <laughs> he, he, was, he was going to protect him. Then we have... Uh, the name uh, Martin Bucer. Now, when we think of the Reformation, we think of Luther and Wittenberg. We think of John Calvin and Geneva. Uh, We would think also of Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich. But there's another main Reformation center, and that's Strasbourg. And Martin Bucer was the kind of the, the, the head at Strasbourg there. So keep him in mind. And then we've got Maximilian. He was the Holy Roman Emperor. He was on his way out. Interesting things with him. He had fallen off a horse in 1501, was never quite right since then. And I think at the time, if I remember right, somewhere around 1514 or something, he had premonitions of his own death, I guess, because everywhere he went, he brought his casket with him. Oh, my. So it was kind of an interesting uh, character. And then he was succeeded by his grandson, Charles V. And Charles V uh, was the one who really was the Holy Roman Emperor who 
was a Holy Roman Emperor during the time of the Reformation. And the last individual I'm going to talk about is Cardinal Cajetan. He was a papal legate in Augsburg, and we'll talk about him later because Luther has a pretty good confrontation with him. Now, what about the timing of all this? Luther, it seems, is kind of the first one in this string of reformers. Yes, you look at Luther, and to get the background, we'll go back. Here we have Albert of Mainz. Now, the thing about Albert of Mainz is he had three C's. A C is a place he's over. He's a bishopric or some executive head of. Now, there's problems with that. He's only supposed to have one. (laughs) And when he started, he was too young to begin with. So there's two problems. But those things can be overcome. You know, they're overcome by a special papal decree. Mm -hmm. You know, if the Pope agrees with it, it can be done. Mm -hmm. Now, Leo X is is trying to build St. Peter's Basilica, which is costing a lot of money. And so when Albert comes and he says, you know, I would like this. And he says, oh, yes, it can be done for a price. <laughs> <laughs> so the the legend has it that the Pope said to him that he should pay him 12,000 ducats for the 12 apostles. And then Albert goes back, he says, no, how about 7,000 ducats for the seven deadly sins? See, this is all very spiritual, you understand. (laughs) And they apparently settled on 10,000 ducats for the uh, Ten Commandments. So, Uh, we we have that. Now, where do you get the money? Well, you borrow it from the Fugers, and then you have to pay back the Fugers, but how do you get the money to pay back the Fugers? Oh, we have a solution. You sell indulgences. Now, what was an indulgence? An indulgence was a paper that you could buy, and in this case, it was called a plenary indulgence, which meant it it would take away all the sins. So you could buy your buy you your could way, buy salvation. You could buy your way out of purgatory. So if you had a lot of money, that would really make you safe. It, oh, it, that was, <laughs> and and of course, it was tied to this whole penitential system that had developed, where you had to. When you came to the priest, you had your confession, and then he gave you a certain number of penances you'd have to do. And some of these penances could could last past into purgatory, so you'd have to get do the penances there. Okay, all this, this stuff was tied together with the doctrine of purgatory. Now I see. Luther sees this, and so. The individual he has selling these indulgences is a man by the name of Johannes Tetzel. So that's Tetzel. He's the guy that sells the indulgences. He's selling the indulgences, and and he never gets into Wittenberg. Uh, Good thing for him. Who knows what Luther would have done with him. (laughs) (laughs) But there were some of his parishioners were going out and buying them. Uh, By the way, it was Frederick the Wise who actually didn't let him into Wittenberg. Hmm. Frederick the Wise is like, why should all of our German money be going out of the uh, out of the realm? And so Luther writes against it, and this is where the ninety five theses come in. Luther nails a ninety five theses oh. on the Wittenberg door, October thirty first, fifteen seventeen. And 
what happened with them, Luther just wanted to debate. So as a scholar, all these 95 theses. Yeah, that's the way it's been explained to me. It really wasn't that big of a deal. This is what scholars did. That's what scholars did. Except there's one thing that happened. He he nailed it. He had it in Latin. That's what scholars debated in Mm -hmm. Latin. Uh, Somebody, and I don't think we know exactly who, grabbed hold of it, translated it into German, and had it printed. Ah, so that and so broadcast that, it around. Oh man, everybody heard about this thing then, you know. And so it was, <laughs> it was, it was really broadcast. And so that's kind of like the modern day Twitter, I guess. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> now, now you've got this this stuff out here. And now, what has to be done? And this is where we come into. So you realize it's right at the end of fifteen seventeen. Things happen a lot slower there, even with the movable. Type printing right. press of Gutenberg, it's still a lot slower than Twitter. Yeah, that's you know, right. so things don't happen instantaneously. So suddenly there's there's a big upset. The Pope's really upset. People are losing money. Uh, Tetzel's going uh, back at him, and so you have a situation where you know something has to be done. So no disputation is being held. Things are almost getting out of hand. And so we have in 1518, in April, what was called the Heidelberg Disputation. And so there was Ah. a suggestion somebody ought to say something about this, and maybe we ought to examine this a little bit closer. So the Heidelberg Disputation is in Heidelberg, and it's really sponsored by the Augustinian monks. Luther's an Augustinian. Staupitz had set it up. And so when Staupitz set it up, he said, well, <laughs> he knew Luther was in trouble, and he was a good friend of Luther's. Yeah. And so his whole idea was, let's stay away from indulgences. We don't want to hmm. talk about indulgences, no indulgences. He wanted Luther to talk about sin, free will, and grace. Mm. And here is where Luther developed his theology of the cross. It really oh. got to be published more. The way it was done, there was kind of a certain theses that were presented. There were actually 28 theological ones, and then there was, I don't know, 10 or, or so philosophic ones, which are also significant in and of themselves because the philosophic ones Luther's taken a shot at Aristotle in theology. Oh, interesting. But we're going to focus on the theological ones because a lot of the medieval theology had adopted Aristotelian philosophy, which got melded in it. And Luther, by this time, was saying, if you add Aristotle to your theology, your theology is going to be no good. Now, is that opposed to Augustinian? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And so... In the Heidelberg Disputation, actually, he had another individual Hmm. who was making the arguments. He was the moderator. But these were all theses that he had made. And I just wanted to read a few of the theses. We're not going to get into the details of them. But you see where this is going. You see where Luther is. And I'm starting with the 23rd thesis. The law brings the wrath of God kills, reviles, accuses, judges, and condemns everything that is not in Christ. Mm. And he has Romans, and this is a good thing to know, Romans 4.15. 
So you see what he's talking about. He's talking about works, the law, and what does it do? It kills if you're not in Christ. Well, that's a good reference verse. I just looked it up. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That's right. So, So the law, while it's very important, it also condemns us, and we can't secure eternal life by the works of the law. Right. And he will go in these theses to show how the law still is important, even though it can't save. Right. So then he goes on, yet the wisdom is not of itself evil. See what he's saying there? Yeah, the the law's not evil, nor is the law to be evaded. We're not to evade the law just because it condemns, but without the theology of the cross, man misuses the best in the worst manner. Oh, that's a great statement. Yeah. So you need the theology of the cross, Christ dying on the cross, rising three days later to redeem us from our sins. Right. And then he goes on in Thesis 25, and this is great, I love this, because it's, it's, it's very succinct as well. He is not righteous who does much, but he who without works believes much in Christ. Yes. Now, how does he get around the idea that the belief itself could be a work? Oh, because that's a gift. Yes. So he, he goes on to that. In 26, and you'll see that as it comes in, the law says, do this, and it is never done. (laughs) Grace says, believe this, and everything is done already. Oh, there's the key word, already. It's already done. Christ has done it already. Yes. So when you're a Christian, dear listener, you're a Christian because Christ has opened your spiritual eyes. He's given you the ability to believe on Jesus. He's imparted grace to your soul. The Holy Spirit has worked on you. And uh, in that sense, you freely chose Christ. But something happened initially. Initially. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith and that, not of yourself. It's not of yourself. The faith (laughs) is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should Just once in a while I'll hear somebody hold up free will as it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But uh, free will, if it's not regenerated, it, yeah. if, if Christ hasn't worked on that free will, always sends us to hell. Yeah, yeah. And, and actually, I mean, this is just a half-hour program, and so we're not getting into it in great detail. If we were to go back earlier, Luther really talks about this, oh, yeah. how, how even our good works are bad works. Now, didn't he write Christ. a book, The Bondage of the Will? Okay, we have to wait two years for that. Ah, and okay, then, so <laughs> that's, a, that's another broadcast. It's it's in 1520. So in in in, in 2020, maybe we'll look at that one. Yeah. Okay, because so, that will be the 500th anniversary of that. Yeah. <laughs> so he does. He he actually does. Um, 27. Actually, one should call the work of Christ an acting work, and our work an accomplished work. See how that works? Now, this gets complicated. Could you slow down just a little bit and explain this? Well, Christ's work, he's the one who actually does it, and our work, an accomplished work. In other words, Christ already did it in us. It's all of Christ. It's all of Christ. So I can't take any credit myself. Right. Yeah. And thus, an accomplished work, pleasing to God by the grace of the acting work. Mm. So the the work of Christ is the acting work. Right, yeah. Or, and, or there's something here, operands. What's that? Is that some Latin thing? Yeah, it's probably, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's a Latin term for, for the acting work. Yeah. And then we have 28, the last one of these. The love of God does not find, but creates that which is pleasing to it. Well, that's it. consistent, too. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. See, in, in other words, he creates the faith in us, and the love of man comes into being through that which is pleasing to it. In a sense, God is still creating. Yes. He's creating all these little, they're not little either, these faith instances in yeah. people's hearts and lives. Right. Exactly. And so when we're looking at this and we're looking at the Heidelberg Disputation, we're seeing the gospel emerging and standing boldly forth as it's all of Christ and not of me. You know, sola Christos is is actually what you're seeing here. Yes, yes. And and of course, which goes along with that is the sola gratia, by grace alone, and sola fides through faith alone. Oh yes. And so you see, all of this is really coming and being pushed to the fore. You don't see that in the ninety five theses. And in oh. fact, in the 95 Theses, it, it's pretty much about the indulgences. There is some grace. You do see some grace coming in there. For example, um, he still allows, and actually, Luther, at, at, at the time he, he put the 95 Theses out, wasn't even arguing that all indulgences are wrong. He's saying, oh, certain indulgences could still be good. Mm-hmm. But now you see where he's starting to move away from that, and you've got more grace alone through so, Christ uh, alone. His thinking is uh, clarified over yes. the course of this year. Yes, yes, it's oh, getting more yes. and more clarified. And the interesting thing is, he then starts about the same time he he's told he says, "Well, you know what? Things are getting distorted here. They were distorted by for a couple of reasons." Because people would just distort them. But there also was a group of uh, enemies who forged a set of theses on the, on the papal ban. Really? And published them under Luther's name. Think of a false dossier going out here. Those rascals. <laughs> yeah. And so Staupitz said, you know what you really need to do? You need to write an explanation to your 95 theses. So make sure you explain them. Well, before we get on to that... I just also want to mention that at the Heidelberg Disputation, notice that it's before a bunch of Augustinians. Now, if you look into the Heidelberg Disputation, you'll see mostly scriptures, but you'll see a good bit of Augustine, too. And as Augustine is often considered the good interpreter of the Apostle Paul, he is used by Luther there. Mm. So you see that, but also you... See, at the Heidelberg Disputation, a young man by the name of Martin Bucer. That's with a B, B-U-C-E-R. Yep, Martin Bucer. And remember, I mentioned earlier that he was going to become the head at Strasbourg. Oh, yes. And so this is where it could have started for him, is at the Heidelberg Disputation, listening and hearing Luther. Now, uh, I wanted to ask you this, and it keeps coming to mind um, when you say Heidelberg, and uh, there's something, I believe it comes later in history, called the Heidelberg Catechism, right? Yes, yes it is, and it, it does come later in history. Right. Yeah, so this is a little bit different uh, from it that. It sure is, yeah. Yeah, and the Heidelberg Catechism, it, it tends to be more, it's a Reformed 
catechism right. as opposed to the Lutheran, which there's not a great deal of difference. Let's, well, certainly on well. the doctrines of grace, I think they're pretty yeah. much in line. Yeah, that's that's true. So I think, you know, that's, yeah, one thing to keep in mind, the Heidelberg Catechism will be coming yeah, right. in a while here. So Luther starts writing his explanation, and it actually matures and grows because he wasn't allowed to print it when he wanted to, and he never finished it till August of 1518 when he published his explanations to the 95 Theses. And you still see some things left there, but you have these these explanations. Well, that's helpful. Yeah. So now what happens is the Pope wants them to come. No, Frederick's not going to send them. They are meeting at Augsburg because Maximilian wants... I mean, this is 1518. It'll be another year before Maximilian dies. But he wants Charles I of Spain, which will become Charles V, to become the Holy Roman Emperor. The Pope doesn't want that to happen. He thinks that by... Uh, being buddy-buddy with Frederick the Wise, maybe he can keep that from happening. So he he's not going to be totally opposed to anything Frederick the Wise does. At any rate, he says, okay, let's have at Augsburg here, let's have Luther meet with uh, Cardinal Cajetan, the papal legate. Mm-hmm. And, and what we want Cardinal Cajetan to do here is... I don't want him to argue, but what I want him to do is be very fatherly towards him and bring him along. Well, Luther hmm. meets with him three days, and uh, they don't get anywhere <laughs> in three days. And so what happens in those three days is uh, it's very interesting. Kajitan is a good scholar. He had actually written a commentary on Thomas Aquinas. But what we have here is we have a clash of worldviews. And the clash of worldviews come with Kajetan looking at the dogma of the church, the, the doctrines that are written there, and a lot of decrees of the popes. And Luther is looking at it through the eyes of Scripture. Mm-hmm. And that's where you see the big clash coming. And I've got a couple things to read here. One of the things that Cajetan brought up was a writing called the Extravagante of Clement. Clement was a pope that lived 1343. And so Luther answers this. And the way Luther answers it is really good to see. The Extravagante, um, you had the canon law, and then you had an appendix to the canon law. The Extravagante was the appendix. And so this is, this is it. And so Luther writes, he says, I then answered that I carefully examined not only the Extravagante of Clement, but also the other one of Sixtus IV. Sixtus IV was uh, 15th century, mm-hmm. uh, which emulated and was similar to it. For I'd actually read both and had found them characterized by the same verbosity, which destroys one's faith and their trustworthiness, stuffed as, as they were with ignorance. The extravagante did not impress me as being truthful or or authoritative for many reasons, but especially because it distorts the holy scriptures and audaciously twists the words, if indeed their customary meaning should still be accepted, into a meaning which they do not have in their context. In fact, 
into the contrary meaning. The scriptures which I follow in my thesis 7 are to be preferred to the bull in every case. Nothing is proven in the bull. Only the teachings of St. Thomas is trotted out and retold, St. Thomas being Aquinas. <laughs> I must say, Luther had fire in his belly, and he was brave. He was. No question about it. Well, thank you very much. This is. I know that you have so much more material. <laughs> we could keep going probably for hours, but this is enlightening. And so, um, just to summarize, the significance of today being... Uh, one year later after the 500th anniversary, again? I would say, again, it's that Luther at Heidelberg, the gospel, the pure gospel of Christ's death and resurrection being the sole and sufficient satisfaction for our sins, accepted by faith through God's grace, came to the fore, and Luther's establishment of trusting in scriptures and trusting in scriptures alone for the truth came out with his disputation with Kajetan. Well, that's beautiful. And thank you very much, Pastor Mark Diedrich, for joining us today on A Plain Answer. Thanks so much, Dan. Dear listener, please join us next week for another edition of A Plain Answer.